This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. It's one of the most iconic sounds in rock and roll history, the opening chord from the Beatles' hit, A Hard Day's Night. For decades, musicians have debated what that chord actually is and what instruments it was played on. It took a math professor to apply advanced calculus to the problem. Coming up, Jason Brown will explain his theory. Plus, it's been another busy week on the Ontario election trail. Following the first and only televised debate, the candidates have been making their final push to earn your vote this coming Thursday. How are things shaping up in the home stretch? That's what we'll discuss in today's edition of our special Zoomer election panel. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. This Thursday, Quebec's National Assembly made a landmark decision in the Right to Die campaign. Bill 52 passed Thursday afternoon by a 94-22 to margin with no abstentions. The legislation is officially dubbed an act respecting end-of-life care. Bill 52 stipulates that patients themselves would have to repeatedly ask a doctor to end their lives on the basis of unbearable physical or psychological suffering. They would have to be deemed mentally sound at the time of the requests. The federal government has said it could challenge the legality of the legislation. Meanwhile, experts around the world say lack of access to pain relief for dying patients has become a public health emergency. The BBC reports that almost 18 million people, mainly in developing countries, died in unnecessary pain in 2012. It quotes the Worldwide Palliative Care Alliance as saying that part of the problem is the refusal of governments to give patients access to painkillers such as morphine. The group blames the restrictions on exaggerated fears about the risk of addiction. Under the command of General Eisenhower, Allied naval forces, supported by strong air forces, began landing Allied armies this morning on the northern coast of France. This Friday was the 70th anniversary of D-Day, the pivotal battle that marked the beginning of the end of World War II. On June 6, 1944, more than 130,000 Allied troops invaded the beaches of northern France by air and sea. More than 10,000 were killed, injured, or taken prisoner. Canada played a major role in the invasion. The 3rd Canadian Division landed at Juneau Beach. They sustained heavy casualties in the first hours of their attack, but were slowly able to drive back the Nazi army, and by the end of the day, the Canadians had penetrated further into mainland France than both the Americans and the British. This Friday, the world paused to remember all who fought bravely and those who laid down their lives for us on that day in 1944. 
and one Scottish D-Day veteran went the extra mile to mark the occasion. Jock Hutton was 19 when he jumped 500 feet from a plane into Normandy. This Friday, at the age of 89, he jumped from a plane with an instructor to appreciative applause. Once I stuck my head out the door and I got a heave from the back, I was away. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. The televised debate was this week's highlight on the Ontario election campaign trail. It was supposed to be a turning point, but was it? Beforehand, polls showed that many voters intended to base their decision on what they saw Tuesday night. But right afterwards, the survey suggested that it wouldn't change any minds. What does it all mean? I'm here with our Zoomer election panel, Susan Eng, CARP's VP of Advocacy, Dale Goldhawk, host of Goldhawk Fights Back, and John Wright, senior VP of Ipsos Global. I was very disappointed with the debate. It, there was no turning point. Uh, I think that people's positions might have hardened, but anybody on the fence had no good reason for stepping off. I don't think it mounted to much of anything at all. It wasn't even much of a spirited back and forth like I seem to recall having with other politicians back in the old days. It was all very stilted. I I think Tim Hudak looked the most relaxed for whatever that gets you. But winning a debate, and you know this, John, doesn't mean you're going to win an election, right? Well, and we did impanel 1,700 likely voters who watched it had actually said beforehand what they thought would happen, and then they told us afterwards what they thought occurred. And you'd have to say that half of them, 47%, saw no knockout punch. Uh, most of them went into the debate thinking that the premier was going to win. But at the end, actually, most people said reluctantly, because they didn't like his delivery, they said Tim Hudak did. And the polling that we have following the debate shows that the popular vote, in fact, is now almost dead even with the Tories and the Liberals. So that's been a change. Um, it, it seems to have perked up a little bit of the Liberal vote to get out, um, and it's brought the Tory vote down just in terms of the popular vote. In terms of the get-out-the-vote, though, it's still a pretty wide margin, and the, the Conservatives are actually still planning to show up more at the ballot box than the Liberals. The NDP are kind of holding where they were before. So I think coming out of the debate, there were a lot of clips that people saw on the news. There was a lot of, you know, social media activity. And it was that one clip of you had a choice, you know, very similar to the Mulroney. Yeah, I know. Yeah, that I was a total it, crib. You know, and I don't <laughs> think it worked very well. With all these well-rehearsed attack lines, they and Andrew Horvath jumping in, you know, randomly with her ideas. And I, I thought, you know, you know, we've heard these lines before. And there was such a lack of authenticity. Honestly, you know, I think it's true that many agree that Kathleen Wynne did not get out as strongly as she could have done. But she didn't have any slick responses that people hoped that she would have. But then at the end of it, after you stop to think about it, maybe she was the most authentic. Well, she t- I thought she looked completely uncomfortable and scripted. And whoever whoever coached her on the arm thing, that was huh. silly. But I, uh, So the question is... Did she do herself damage because of the perception that she had a poor performance? I I actually chime in on this and say that I think the campaign has been a disappointment. The fact of the matter is that there's been no bite to to the liberal campaign, and I think to a degree that's what made the premier look uncomfortable because she seemed to absorb all of this stuff and not give it back. Uh, So did she do herself damage? 
Well, in the, in the short term of the spinning, I think she did a little bit, but I don't think she helped her cause. And as I've you know, seen from the outset, there's a very suppressed liberal vote. They need to rally around something and someone to get out the vote. And where she's going, remember last week I said, you know, watch where they go in the days following right. the event. Well, she, was, she did Toronto. Ottawa, where she's got a couple of seats, and the 905. That doesn't sound like a victory tour to me, where you're going off into new territory and trying to claim new seats. And I think they realize that they're having a hard time getting out the vote. The other thing I found interesting, there were two kind of press releases from Andrea Horvath, one welcoming conservative voters and assuring that the NDP will, will give a sensible government, and another one welcoming liberals who can't vote for the corrupt government. She's deluded. You know, there's no chance that any cons- you know, fixed conservative voter is going to change. If they don't vote for Hudak, they, are not be- they won't be voting for Horvath. So that's self-delusion of the highest order. Uh, you know, she might have some grab with the uh, liberal voters uh, because of the OPP's intrusion into the uh, election at this late stage. I'm with Susan on this. I don't think it's plausible that conservatives are going to walk over to Andrea Horwath, but there are going to be some people in the, in the final voting booth who finally say, you know what, I just can't stomach either of the two, but I'll pick one in the middle. And that's probably what she's hoping for. As we go into the last week, uh, what is this going to mean for the turnout? <laughs> well, it's at, at last time 49.1%. And w- because of the pox factor that I'm hearing a lot of, I mean, they don't seem to, nobody's fallen in love with anybody here. Let's, let's face it, it's only people they don't want to be the premier, not people that they want to be the premier. I wouldn't be at all surprised if it was lower than it was in 2011. John, what do you think is going to happen? Well, I'm going to put myself on the spot because we won't be back until after the election campaign. So I think we've put our finger on exactly what the real issue here is, and that is voter turnout. And you're right, Dale. We're hovering around 52 53% turnout uh, on our polling right now. If, if people don't turn out, who does it hurt? It hurts the incumbent. Uh, that's what we're seeing as a suppressed liberal vote. So here I am. I'm going to say that while the popular vote may remain uh, very even for the Tories and the Liberals going in the final days of the campaign, Tim Hudak, in my view, will win the most seats on Election Day. And that's simply because his voters are much more motivated to get out. I think that Andrea will do probably a couple of points better than she did last time out. Uh, but I think that the grits are going to win in you know, some seats in Toronto, uh, but not, you know, and, and maybe in Thunder Bay, but not much else because they just can't get the vote out. We'll see over the next few days, but my sense is that Hudak is going to win the most seats on that night. Wow, that's uh, quite the prediction. Hey, that's what you wanted, didn't you? Yeah, why, well, sure. We'll remind you of that later, don't I worry. Don't, I'll have lots of people <laughs> doing that. Yeah, we're, we're under our desk at the moment. And says Susan, okay. <laughs> Thank you all very much, and we will reconvene for our final election panel next week. Thank you so much. Thank you. Be sure to listen next week when we examine the results of the poll that counts the most in our final Zoomer election panel. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. When you listen to the popular Beatles songs from the 1960s, I bet the last thing that pops into your head is advanced calculus. But my next guest says that pop music and mathematics go hand in hand, He's even used math to deconstruct one of the biggest rock and roll mysteries. In just a moment, we'll learn more from Jason Brown. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. 
brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. It's been a hard day's night, and I've been working like a dog. The opening chord of the Beatles' A Hard Day's Night is one of the most celebrated and mysterious pieces of pop music. For decades, musicians and fans have been speculating about what exactly that chord is and why it's so hard to reproduce. Musician-turned-math professor Jason Brown used advanced calculus to finally come up with a solution. He'll be in town for this year's Idea City Conference coming up in less than two weeks. We reached him at his Dalhousie office in Halifax for a preview. That opening chord for Hard Day's Night always captivated me. And I had looked in different music books to see how people had transcribed it and what they thought were uh, the notes that were being played. And every book had um, a different transcription. And in uh, uh, 2004, it was the 40th anniversary of A Hard Day's Night, and the song came back to me. And what I realized was that I had some mathematics behind me that I could use to try to unravel how that chord was played. It was a mystery for everyone. Um, you know, people thought the chord had been played uh, different ways. And the problem is, is that, you know, even seasoned musicians will hear notes in a chord that aren't there, and they'll miss notes that are there. And then you're just relying on personal judgment. And didn't the, the Beatles never cleared this up? No, they never cleared it up. I think they liked the fact that, you know, there were inherent mysteries in their songs. So you decided that you had the tools to solve the mystery, so explain to us how you did it. There's a, a certain branch of calculus that's called Fourier transforms. And it's a, it's a part of mathematics that was um, initially created to study heat transfer in physics, but it was also used in music. And it, what it allows you to do is to take um, a wave, and in particular sound wave, and um, express it in terms, terms of its basic component uh, waves. And there is mathematics to do that, and, and it can be programmed. So I started to make some mathematical deductions, knowing how the guitars were uh, tuned and strung, and uh, trying to piece apart the, the data that I got. And what did you come up with? And what I came up with was I got stuck. I got stuck. And I almost gave up at that point, but then I realized that I had an assumption that I had held for ever. And that assumption was that it was just the Beatles playing on that opening chord. And then I thought, what about if there was another instrument there? And in particular, what about if there's a piano in there? I'd realized that their producer, George Martin, did play piano later on in the song when he doubled George Harrison's guitar solo. And so he played the F note, he played some other notes as well, some that the Beatles played, some that they didn't. And he played almost a Rachmaninoff kind of chord, like a classical chord on a guitar. Now, what is the connection between math and music, and why is it important that we know about it? Well, there is a very deep connection between mathematics and music. It was known since the ancient uh, Greeks. Mathematics appears so often in music that you can't really appreciate music well without, at a subconscious level, appreciating the mathematics. Mathematics is the study of patterns, and patterns are the basis of great music and the mix of setting expectations and surprising us. 
And so I find instances of this throughout uh, rock and roll. I find it, for instance, in Chuck Berry's guitar play, lead guitar playing. I'll find it in, you know, the Beatles' uh, work. I, f- I find it when I look at the song, I Want to Hold Your Hand. And it gives me great insight into why the Beatles managed to conquer North America with that song. What do you say to people who say it's just almost sacrilegious to reduce music to math? Well, I've heard that. I think part of the reason that people say that is that so many people have had a bad experience with mathematics in their educational career. If you have a bad year or a bad teacher in mathematics somewhere along in elementary school or in junior high and high school, it's arrested development. You often never recover from that. So people often have this disdain for mathematics. I think inherent in the mathematical analysis is we get some great insight into the uh, character and the brilliance of the Beatles. Okay. Thank you so much. Looking forward to hearing you and seeing you at Idea City. It'll be a pleasure. Looking forward to meeting you. You can see and meet Jason Brown at this year's Idea City Conference. It runs from June 18th through the 20th at Kerner Hall. For tickets and information, visit ideacityonline.com. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. We'll take a quick break and then return with a celebration of a Welsh superstar who's celebrating his birthday. Stay with us. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing making people's lives better. Welcome back to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. It's time for your international arts date book tips for those of you who are jetting around the world. Here's Jane Brown. In New York City, the Comedy of Errors is in previews at the Delacorte Theater in Central Park. The production stars Hamish Linklater and Jesse Tyler Ferguson and launches the Shakespeare in the Park summer season. In Los Angeles, artist Bettina Hubby has turned her double mastectomy into an opportunity to create new art. She's also gotten other artists involved in her exhibit, which she calls Thanks for the Memories. Hubby says she realizes her project may strike some as an overly glib reaction to a grave disease, but says the response has been overwhelmingly positive. It's at the Cloden Mann Gallery. To London, England, where Academy and Tony Award-winning actor Kevin Spacey stars in Clarence Darrow. Spacey's first solo show is about the rebellious defense lawyer who fought for unemployment rights and opposed racism. It's on stage at the Old Vic Theatre. And in Paris, see an exhibit from the Louvre Abu Dhabi. 150 masterpieces already acquired by the UAE Museum are being presented in France in a major exhibition called Birth of a Museum. I'm Jane Brown, and that's the International Arts Date Book. This weekend, The Voice, Tom Jones, is celebrating his 74th birthday. He was born Thomas Jones Woodward on June 7, 1940. He comes from Treforest, a small town in Wales. When he was a teenager, he started becoming known in the area for his rich, baritone voice. In the early 1960s, he became the frontman of a local beat group. Tommy Scott and the Senators. It was with them that Jones was spotted by Gordon Mills, a London-based manager. Mills took Jones to London and was able to get him a record deal. His first single, Chills and Fever, was released in late 1964 and didn't make any noise on the UK charts. 
But his follow-up single was a huge success. It hit the number one spot on the UK charts and has since become Tom Jones' signature song. Here it is, Tom Jones with It's Not Unusual. It's not unusual to be loved by anyone. It's not unusual to have fun with anyone. But when I see you hanging about with anyone, it's not unusual to see me cry I wanna die It's not unusual to go out at any time But when I see you out and about it's such a crime If you should ever wanna be loved by anyone It's not unusual It happens every day No matter what you say Find it happens all the time Love will never do What you want to do Why can't this crazy love be more? It's not unusual to be mad with anyone It's not unusual to be sad with anyone But if I ever find that you've changed at any time It's not unusual to find that I'm in love with you That was Tom Jones with his signature tune, It's Not Unusual. Jones celebrated his 74th birthday this weekend. And that brings us to the end of another edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week when we look at what the Ontario election results will mean for Zoomers. You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive Producer, Moses Knight. Produced by Paul Thomas. Program Director, John Bendry. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review. Heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. Home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.